And welcome to the Hammer Time Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Hammerman. Great stuff going on this week. This is, of course, the podcast where we always talk about all forms of sports, society, and stuff. And if you didn't listen last week, I am now also a feature writer on Playmaker Mentality, where this podcast can always be found. And you can also listen to this podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. So I hope that you download it, share it with your friends, give us lots of good ratings. We're hoping to really build some momentum. Crazy, we are now seven episodes in. It's been a great experience, and I'm really, really excited about our guest tonight. Ty Shalter is here with us, Bleacher Report writer, doer of many things, and he can introduce himself, I guess. So, Ty, why don't you tell the people where they can find you? Okay, so kind of the root of all things right now is my Twitter feed, at Ty Shelter, T-Y-S-C-H-A-L-T-E-R. Of course, I promote anything I do there. Um, primarily, I work as an NFL national analyst for Bleacher Report. I have BleacherReport.com, and you can search for Ty Shelter. I'm on there. I also am a radio host for Bleacher Report's radio channel on Sirius XM Channel 83. I do a weekly show with Jason Cole, 9 to 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Um, I also regularly do guest spots on their other shows, as well as guest spots at a radio station near you uh, worldwide uh, over the week. Um, and then I also uh, cover the NFL weekly for Vice Sports, as well as do special profiles and features for them. And I'm also writing uh, regularly, uh, at least once a week, maybe a little bit more on both sports and pop culture at the Comeback, the new site. Um with the, by Ben Koo and Dan Levy and Ian Castleberry and those guys. So, um, and then every once in a while, I keep a personal blog just if, if there's something that I just can't fit into any of those buckets. So you're extremely, extremely busy, is what you're saying on a weekly basis. You're yeah. just doing a little bit of everything. A little bit of everything: writing, talking, uh, lots of reading, and plenty of tweeting. Oh, of course, tweeting is the most important part. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it isn't what pays the bills, but it's what pays the soul. If you get what I'm it saying. Doesn't. It's, it's funny, I actually just got interviewed by the local paper here in town of like, hey, Lansing Twitter accounts, you should follow. So they're like, hey, like, wh- why do you use Twitter? Why do you like Twitter? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't even <laughs> like, explain. Like, literally my entire job is, is hooked into Twitter. Uh, it's, it's where everything happens. Definitely. People don't actually read newspapers anymore. They just go to Twitter. Exactly. So... We're going to start with the sports segment, and you are a football guy, and football yes. is coming down to the Final Four. We only have a couple of games left, three to be exact, two of which will be called by Jim Nance and Phil Sims, to the chagrin of many, perhaps. <laughs> and we're going to run through both of them, and we're going to start with the NFC, because last week we started with the AFC, and I want to switch it up. we got sure. Carolina against Arizona. So, from what you saw last week, where do you think both teams are now coming into this game? It's funny, because I've been calling this since at least Halloween. Like, this just seemed like the predestined match of Carolina and Arizona, uh, that they were going to be one and two, whether, you know, whoever's going to be one, probably Carolina won, um, and they were going to meet in the NFC Championship game. And I think the math of this got affected very heavily when Carolina lost uh, Benny Benwickery and Peanut Tillman, two of their top three corners, in the last two weeks of the regular season. Uh, because if, if nothing else, what Carolina's got is – I'm sorry, what Arizona's got to, uh, against Carolina is depth and speed at the wide receiver position. Obviously, you have Larry Fitzgerald, 
But you also have Michael Floyd. You also have John Brown. you got David Johnson coming out of the backfield. They've got a lot of people who can do some damage in space. And, of course, Carson Palmer, Bruce Arians, neither of them shy away from, from going downfield and trying to hit the home run. And, you know, you saw it against Green Bay. Carson Palmer did not lose confidence in that deep ball. Like, obviously something was a little off, a little bit with his finger or whatever it was. Uh, you know, he missed some throws he normally doesn't miss, but never, ever, ever once did he stop trying to attack the Green Bay secondary to go downfield. And I think that's that's going to be very tough for Carolina to adjust for. Obviously, you know, Kwan Short, Starley Tulele, um, Jared Allen, even in, rotationally, they bring heat on the passer. Uh, obviously, Luke Keekley is a tremendous playmaker in the middle of the field against the pass and against the run. They're going to be very tough to run on. Uh, and Arizona, especially now that they've had to go to David Johnson as their primary back, doesn't do a ton of up the middle running anyway. Uh, but this is just, it's just a fascinating matchup. And it could be a very high scoring game. You know, Cam Newton has found a way to put up a ton of points no matter who he's got to work with, no matter what defense he's going against. You know, he, to think that he would put up 31 in a half against Seattle is incredible, especially given the receivers he's working with. Um, I think it's going to be a great game. I think it's going to be a classic. And I don't need to take away from Cam or the Panthers. But I just think too highly of Carson Palmer and Bruce Arians what they've got to work with. I think they are playing just lights-out football right now on both sides of the ball, really, and I think they make it to the Super Bowl. I definitely agree with a lot of the points of your analysis. Other than the team that's going to win the game, I do think the Panthers (laughs) are going to win. But there is a little bit of concern in my mind, because watching last week, there were two important things that I really took away from those two NFC games. One is that the Cardinals should have won that game going away, but they let the Packers hang around a little bit too much. And there were some issues with execution that happened in the red zone. That interception by Demarius Randall, the sure. Cardinals not running out the clock when they could have. To me, Larry Fitzgerald was really the X factor in that game. He was so huge toward the end, and that is a guy who just did not want to lose. And I think that he, that cannot be underrated enough when you have the heart of your team the lifer on your team, someone who clearly the entire locker room greatly respects and they would run through a brick wall for him. When he is setting that example, I definitely think that it can elevate the entire team, but there are still some concerns there. And Carolina's offensive line is a little bit underrated to me. But Carolina scares me a bit as well. And it's because when they had a chance to put the clamps on Seattle and just completely blow them out the box, they sat back in the second half, and they were a little bit less than impressive. Of course, they destroyed them early in the game, and Russell Wilson has a tendency to not be very good in the first half and get better in the second half. But I was a little bit unimpressed from that perspective, because Arizona, to me, consistently this year, has been a team that's built on leads. And I thought Carolina was the same. I thought Carolina, once they went up 24 to nothing, 31 to nothing... I thought they were going to win by 30 points by the end of the game. Because I had seen them in other matchups this year against pretty good opponents just pour it on toward the end. And it made me begin to think, now we've had the Atlanta loss, and now we've had this game, maybe they're a bit more vulnerable than I had given them credit for. And part of it is, as you said, perhaps because they are a little bit thin in the defensive backfield. And when you think about it, their safeties are not that rangy. Kirk Coleman was exposed a lot when he was on the Eagles. Colin Jones is not very good. I don't think he should be starting in most contexts. 
Josh Norman is great, but when you're playing against the Cardinals, it is a little bit more difficult to match him up because who are you going to play him on? I guess Fitzgerald, but then you have John Brown. You have any number of weapons. Michael Floyd has been phenomenal recently. Yes. So I think it's going to be a challenge. To that same degree, though, I also think that Arizona is a little bit overrated. I don't think that offensive line is as good as people think it is. They're going to have some issues against good. Carolina's front. Do, do people think it's good? Do, like, I, yeah. I mean, you know, not that it's a, or, you know, I'm just curious because, like, you know, that was the big thing holding them back, especially two years ago and a little bit last year. You know, they've made some moves to solidify it, but I, I definitely view it as the, the weak point of the offense and, and something that you know, has held them back from being a historically great offense right now. You know, a 35-38 point per game offense as opposed to a 30-32 point per game offense. And another thing that the Panthers will have is the interior play of Kawan Short and Starla Tulele, as you mentioned, is such a differentiator. In my mind, Kawan Short, who... Disclaimer, is someone who I loved in the 2013 draft that should have been a first-round pick and probably was the preeminent person who really tried to represent him, at least in draft Twitter. He should be Defensive Player of the Year in my mind. I don't think it's that close. He's been amazing this year, and I'm not sure who else you would give it to. He really has been the key of that defense and has helped to make it the best defense in football. Jared Allen, it sounds like, is he going to play? I thought he was hurt. Um... You know, honestly, that, that that's a good point. I'm not positive he's 100 percent or, or really. Good. I was just you know, and that that's one of the things is they've been getting production from uh, you know a hodgepodge of guys, rotation of guys up front. Um, he's the first edge rusher that came to mind, but I think you're right. I, I'm not sure he's going to play. Yeah, and their linebackers are great too. They really do strike me as a really really dominant team. It's going to be a close game. I think the home field advantage could help Carolina, but also sometimes you just got to pick the best quarterback. And I think Cam is better than Carson Palmer. Carson's a great quarterback, but Cam is the MVP. So that's sort of what it comes down to to me. Plus, I need to be consistent because last week I picked the Panthers. I don't want to renege on them right away. So, sure. moving conferences to the AFC, let's talk about the Broncos and the Patriots. I'm going to let you give your two cents first because my pick obviously is going to be biased. So why don't you jump on and say what you think about this game? Sure. Okay. And first, I just Googled super fast. Yes, Jared Allen did fracture his foot. He's doubtful. Uh, That's got to be a very hard doubtful. Uh, So you're right. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, You know, for me, Patriots fans and I have had a very special relationship over the past uh, season and a half because in the wake of the Kansas City Monday Night Football debacle last year. I declared the Patriots dynasty dead. Well, uh, you know, Patriots proved me wrong uh, in the sense that Tom Brady really rebounded uh, and really led that team. Um, The front seven dramatically improved over the course of the year. Um, And and, they played lights out football down the stretch and into the playoffs. And then this season, you know, in the off season, they lost Darrell Rebus. Um, and, I, and I didn't really look at the additions and go, these guys are a lot better now. Uh, I thought at best they held serve and, and really probably would feel the, the loss of Revis quite a bit. So I was not as high. And everybody kind of thought, oh, yeah, Patriots will roll out of them in the Super Bowl. I said, hey, there's a lot of problems here. I see a lack of depth. I don't see any running game. 
I'm not sure they're going to be able to protect Tom Brady, let alone open holes for this, you know, non-existent running back crew they've got. And so a lot of these concerns of mine came home to roost down the stretch, but now they're getting everybody back healthy. Tom Brady, I think, I think he played much better, especially over the first eight to 12 weeks of the season this season than he did last year. Uh, I think Tom Brady dramatically improved his game. And whether that's chip on a shoulder thing, deflate gate, I don't know, but, but it's there. His performance has been incredible. And now they've got Gronkowski, you know, not a hundred percent, but back they've got Edelman, you know, maybe not a hundred percent, but again, back and giving Brady that outlet against pass rushes. We talk about pass rushes like Kansas city, talk about pass rushes like Denver, his sort of lightsaber against those defenses was Julian Edelman is always open in a five yard box. And if I get, if I'm getting one step or three steps and I have to fire, you know, one step fire, three step fire, get rid of it. He'll be open. And that safety valve has totally defused, uh, man, talk about mixed metaphors. Okay. But that, that outlet has totally relieved the pressure from pass rushes like Denver's. And so if you're counting on the Denver pass rush to get to Tom Brady and you're counting on the secondary to blanket those receivers, you know, I think he's got too many weapons again. I think Tom Brady has too many options, and I think he's going to be able to pick them apart and, and score more points than Peyton Manning. And the Broncos are going to be able to score against the Patriots' defense because you know Peyton Manning right now really doesn't have anything left. You know, it's, it's a fantastic quarterback, and I will go hard for him on a historical basis. I'm, I'm probably a bigger Manning supporter than most people are still at this point in terms of the historical context. I think the postseason narratives of him and Brady. Are, are kind of overblown. Um, I think people forget that these two faced had to head in the AFC Championship game and, and, and Manning won. Uh, but at the same time, I'm looking at Tom Brady the way he's playing, and I'm looking at Peyton Manning, basically the lowest-rated starting passer this year in the NFL, and going, I don't see how the Patriots don't win this game. So there's a lot to unpack there. I'm going to start with last year, because there were a lot of people who counted the Patriots out after that Chiefs game. In reality, to me, the crux of the matter was that the Patriots' offensive line was still rotating players through that game. That was the last game where they had series-by-series rotation, and then once they solidified their line, the team was totally fine. It was just Belichick trying to figure out what the best combination would be. Now, moving into this year, I agree with you that the Patriots really needed Edelman, and he's been huge for them this season. Now, Revis, you mentioned, even last year, it was pretty evident that he had lost a step. He was a step slow trying to break up passes, and he still was able to succeed against some receivers, but it definitely showed up on in-breaking routes how in the past he had sort of baited the quarterback to throw and then gotten a hand in there to knock the ball away, and he wasn't quite able to do that anymore. And the Patriots were also really, really high on Malcolm Butler. They thought that he was phenomenal, uh, and he has been great this year. I'm not sure that he deserved a Pro Bowl nod, But he's been really good, and it can't be stressed enough. Now, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate for the Patriots now and say how the Broncos could win this game if they have a chance. And they do have a chance, because it's at home. Uh, They're going to be playing with the crowd. Brady has not done well in Denver before. He has issues when he goes to the Mile High City. You have two really good receivers in Demarius Thomas and Emmanuel Sanders. Logan Ryan was able to match up pretty well with Demarius last year and this year as well. Emmanuel Sanders is really, really good, and he got his last time these two teams played. Granted, it was with Osweiler, but the conditions are going to be 
better in this game than they were in that game. So I think that Manning's going to be able to get the ball down the field if he really wants to. And then if the Patriots make a bad play, I mean, they almost threw the game away against Kansas City. And Kansas City, I think, might be slightly better than Denver, but they were at home there, and now they're in hostile territory. So if Denver is able to generate pressure, create a turnover or two, and Manning pulls a throw out of his butt, maybe Denver wins. But I do agree that I think the Patriots should be in good position to win this game as long as they execute what they're supposed to do. If you look at it across the board, they have Edelman, who, as you said, so quick, always able to get open. Chris Harris sounds like even if he does play, he's not going to be 100%. Right. And even against Kansas City, Edelman's role really is to suck up the defense because he's going to draw coverage. And the Patriots' biggest problem late in the season was that they didn't have a number one receiver who really attracted that kind of coverage because Gronk was injured for a lot of the year and they didn't want to use him that much. And so was Edelman, of course. But now, like Danny Amendola, not the best number one receiver, but as a number three receiver, he's probably one of the best in the league. And that's essentially what he is right now. Then you have Brandon LaFell, who's in see a lot of single coverage. You get him on some slants. James White, who I think has been phenomenal this year, he's been a lot better than people have given him credit for, is going to get his chances out of the backfield. And the Broncos' defense is really good. They still don't have great deep coverage. They don't have that single high safety like Devin McCord, who can cover a ton of ground. And I think the Patriots match up pretty well with them. They should have won their last game going away, but then they had a fumbled punt and Gronk got hurt, which was unfortunate. So I think in this game, they should be in pretty good position, although it is on the road. I do think the Patriots are going to win. I'm just a little bit nervous that maybe someone gets injured in the game, but if that happens, I guess we'll have to deal with it because that's football. It is. It is football, absolutely. And I can't, I can't, while we're talking about, you know, overlooked Patriots, have to throw as a, as a third generation Michigan State Spartan, Sean Martin, hashtag Spartan dog. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's made a couple plays in these playoffs. He, he's another X Factor type guy, uh, you know, for one or two, one or two plays, not going to be a huge impact, but I just can't let his name go unmentioned. He catches some long passes. He caught a 40 yard pass against the Chiefs, and right. he's been great for them on special teams, too. I heard that apparently the Patriots didn't really know that much about him coming out of Michigan State, but Bill O'Brien, I mean, they have connections, and he raved about him to Belichick and got him to trade for him because Martin was sort of redundant with some of the weapons they had because the Texans really liked Cecil Shorts and they liked Nate Washington. So they sort of wanted to move on from Martin and Belichick, thanks to his sources around the league, was like, I want this guy, especially given the injuries that we have. And he made the move. And Martin's been great. And he's he just got extended. He just got more money. And he earned a long-term job. And that's one of the things that, when people complain about how the Patriots don't develop receivers well, a lot of it is because they're looking for not just pure receivers. They need people who are very good at a lot of things. And Martin can play special teams. Martin can return punts. Martin can do a lot that maybe an Aaron Dobson can't do. Granted, I wish Dobson was healthy more to prove himself, but you can't always get what you want. And I saw actually an interesting conversation happening about how, I think it was Kean Fahey was saying that the 
Patriots' identity is that they don't have an identity. And that's what makes them different from other teams in the league. <laughs> and I completely disagree with that. I think the Patriots' identity is we want versatile players. You want players who can fill a whole bunch of different roles. Because we only have 53 roster spots, and only 45 of those players can dress. And we want to make sure that we are as well-rounded in all facets of the game as possible. And that's really what they've always done. And, you know, they may never get a Julio Jones. They right. may never get, like, that elite wide receiver. But that's just not what they're looking for. And who knows? Maybe this year they'll end up drafting, like, Leonte Carew or, or someone. And he'll be really good. Or... Actually, if we talk about Michigan State, I think that their receiver, Burbridge, is he eligible this year? Uh, um, yeah, yeah, Burbridge, yeah. I believe he's in the draft, yeah. Because uh, I, and that's, You know, it's, it's funny for me because, and that's the thing, was every time somebody thinks they've got the Patriots figured out, you don't know, because that was the thing even back in the mid-2000s. You know, oh, well, like, you know, Bill Belichick's thing is no wide receivers. You know, you do it with uh, Troy Brown and, and David Given you know, uh, Dion Branch and, you know, scrabble up some guy. Oh, trade for Randy Moss. You know, Tom Brady, 50 touchdowns. You know, I, I mean, I think yeah. it's, it, it's weird because every time you think you've got it pigeonholed, and then, and there's this weird lag effect. Like, okay, they had Gronk, they had Aaron Hernandez, they had this amazing two tight end thing going, and then Hernandez's, you know, Hernandez's thing happens. And I was like, oh, well, they're going to draft the tight end in the first round because they love two tight end sets. So, no, no, they, they ran two tight end sets because they had two great tight ends. Like, like you know, they drafted one, they developed one. Like, that's what they had, you know. And so I, I don't think that it's – that there are pigeonholed roles that Bill Belichick wants to fill. Uh, but I also don't think there's anything where he's going to be like, you know what? I don't, I don't need an Antonio Brown. Yeah. I can't use Antonio Brown. You know, if an Antonio, if he, there's a player who sits there and he's drafting and he's like, you know what, this guy is the best guy. He would make the biggest impact on our team. We'll do what we need to do to take advantage of Antonio Brown. If he thinks that that's going to have the biggest impact, I think that's the move that he makes because he's looking to maximize the talent that he's got and also looking to find guys that are, like you said, great football players, smart football players, tough football players that will go out and give their all every single down. And part of it also is market. So, like, Randy Moss did not have the market. And so Bill Belichick was able to get him for, for a fourth-round pick. So that's also part of it as well. Now, we're going to finish up sports. I actually want to touch on Michigan State because I feel like you might know a little bit more about some of the prospects than me. There's a lot going on about Connor Cook. Uh, he has this weird buzz around him that no one on the team likes him, that he was rude to uh, Archie Griffin, <laughs> that people really just think that he's entitled. A lot of similar stuff that we heard about David Fales a couple of years ago, the guy from San Jose State, where people were saying that the locker room hated him. Since you have your ear a little bit closer to the ground in Lansing than I do, have you heard anything about that, or is it all overblown? Well, the the Archie Griffin thing is certainly overblown. I I basically just don't under... I I just don't think Connor Cook understood by sight in the midst of all that, who Archie Griffin was. Like, I think, oh, there's it. Okay, well, here's Okay, cool, thanks. Like, look, yeah. And it's not like he, you know, pushed him aside or anything, but I just don't think that he understood who the guy was that was standing next to him and, and you know, they had been made a bigger deal of. And here is Archie Griffin. He's gonna, And, like, you know, I think Cook was just swept up in the moment, and I don't think that he meant any intent. And, you know, he 
obviously profusely apologized over and over. So I, I don't think there's anything there with that. Um, you know, it is odd that the team didn't make him a captain. But certainly these guys play hard for Connor Cook. And, um, you know, I've talked to him a couple of times. And he comes across as a, a really cool guy, a really fun guy, a guy who gets it, a guy who wants to win. And, you know, the thing I've been saying in defense of Connor Cook is um, he's sort of the opposite of Kirk Cousins in a lot of ways. And one of those ways is you could count on Kirk Cousins to decimate the minnows. And you couldn't always count on Kirk Cousins to show up huge in big moments. And, you know, Connor Cook, you go back and you look at his, you know, his draft breakdown, you know, you're going to go back and look at some of these games over the past couple years against you know, nobody's and go like, why didn't he put up, you know, 60 points against Jacksonville state or whatever it is. Uh, you know, well, I just, yeah, I don't know. But at the same time you turn around and go, okay, when it is third and eight in the fourth quarter on a driver, you need a touchdown to win and the protection screws up and somebody comes free. There's no more relaxed person in the world than Connor Cook in that moment. Like he's he everything slows down from the more pressure that's on him, the more important it is, the more relaxed he looks and the better he performs. And I will take Connor Cook as my NFL quarterback. And I don't even honestly, I'm so wrapped up you talk about how busy I am. I'm so wrapped up in NFL stuff. I did a two hour radio show and and we it was the last segment and we went we didn't even talk about LA yet. It's the biggest NFL story in, you know, <laughs> five, ten years. We didn't even touch it because there's so much happening with it, with the games and the coaches and everything. So I don't even touch the draft stuff. I don't even look at any of the college stuff until, like, now, basically. I start following East-West Shrine game reports and that sort of thing. Um, you know, so, so for me, I watch the MSU games as a fan. Um, and, I, you know, I certainly know people who are, you know, beat writers and who are there all the time and who are at the facility. But I, I believe in Connor Cook, and I'll take Connor Cook as my quarterback. I don't have any qualms about his leadership or his mental game. I will say that one of my things is third down conversion percentage for quarterbacks when they're coming out of college. And Connor Cook, I actually ran the numbers. He is top 20. He's number 20. He converts third downs at about 38%, which okay. isn't bad. The top one was someone who is a little bit interesting to me, Gunnar Keel from Cincinnati, at about 52%, which part of that's because of the offense, but also it does speak to his composure. Uh, so Cook was a little lower than the likes of Paxton Lynch and Jared Goff. Carson right. Wentz isn't there, and I'm excited to see Carson Wentz next week because I think that some of the buzz on him is a little bit weird, uh, and I want to know more about him. But Cook was above some of his other contemporaries, including, in 96th place, Christian Hackenberg, who, so sad. So, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, it's, it's also, you know, and, and of course, like you say, you know, Cook's sort of a pro-style offense and, and, and this sort of thing. Uh, and again, for me, it, it's, you know, again, if you're looking for him to roll up 40, 50, 60 uh, on some of the early schedule minnows, that's, that's not his game and never been his game. And if you, if you, you know, you're concerned about that, go ahead and be concerned about that. Um, I'm just saying from pure, you know, meathead, crack of the bat, you know, type scout looking, for me, 
you, know, you look at the big games, you look at Ohio, you know, not Ohio State, playoffs, but you look at the big games, you look at Michigan, um, you know, you look at the, the playoff game, the Big Ten championship game, you look at how he performs in big moments and in bowl games, and, and he performs fantastic. And I, I can tell you, he wanted that national championship so badly. Like, that that was the whole reason he came back. He wanted to play. He wanted to win the title. And, you know, I think maybe if it weren't for his shoulder, maybe if it weren't for the breaks, um, but, you know, I, I think things would maybe – I don't want to say they would have beaten Alabama. But, but I think maybe things would have turned out a little bit differently. Uh, again, uh, it, it just comes down to, for me, I wouldn't have any qualms if I'm looking at Connor Cook. I wouldn't have any qualms having him as my quarterback. You know, is, is he better than Paxton Lynch? I'm not going to say that right now. I really need to dig into all these guys. I'm, I'm at, like, square zero with draft stuff um, uh, just as, as a function of what I do. I'm too focused. And, and there's too many guys doing too good a job. You know, like Matt Miller – is, is, is crushing it. Jeff Riston is crushing it. I mean, even at Bleacher Report, you know, I tried, like, draft used to be, like, my thing, and I got into Bleacher Report, and even three, four years ago, I was behind, way behind Matt Miller. I was behind Michael Shoddy. I was behind a lot of these other guys, and I went, okay, I have to be fluent in this, but this used to be my thing, and I'm so far behind the people whose thing it actually really is. Definitely can't relate to that. And that's actually a perfect transition into the next portion of our podcast, the society portion. Because you are a writer, and I know that you had an interesting development process as a writer. You started as a blogger. You had a Detroit Lions blog, and it sort of grew into something. And it's been a pretty hot topic. I know it's something that I constantly think about, and a lot of other people do. As a writer, it's, it's hard out there. It's hard to have your voice heard. It's hard to get paid. It's hard to figure out what people want. So I was hoping that you could share with us the steps that you took and your background into how you grew into the position that you currently have. Sure. Um, so it started, you know, I was in IT. Um, and in the mid-2000s, you know, 2006, 2007, blogs really taken off. Um, and I started reading, like, MGO blog. Um, a couple of the other top sports blogs and starting to follow this stuff a little bit. And, you know, for me, as a kid, I was a voracious reader and, and a writer and, and I had a million interests. I love sports. Um, you know, I wanted to be an architect and I took architect classes in, in high school. I was terrible at it. Uh, so I switched. I've always loved politics. Um, and so, uh, you know, in, in high school, I studied a lot to be a writer. I read books on writing. And I, you know, when I tried to write fiction, I just had, didn't have anything to say. I didn't have any stories to tell. I didn't have any experiences to build off of. And so I kind of abandoned fiction writing at that point. Um, then I went into politics uh, to study politics. My degree was, or sorry, my my, <laughs> my major was political theory and constitutional democracy. And uh, I w- started to go into politics, and I realized that I hated the actual mechanics of campaigns and, and fundraising and stuff like that. It was just not for me. Um, so I kind of bounced around and, uh, my wife and I got married and we started a family. Uh, she actually finished that degree. Uh, so she has the degree I don't. Um, and, and I ended up in computers because suddenly I had a family to support. And so, um, sports throughout and football throughout football, interneting sports, interneting was my thing. And I saw blogs kind of emerge in the mid two thousands, a sporting blog, Dan Levy, um, and, uh, circle and, uh, to a lesser extent, kissing Susie Colbert, but a pro football talk, Mike Florio. I read pro football talk constantly, religiously. It was Twitter before Twitter for me. And, you know, it started to grow on me. This is something that I could do. And, and, 
Um, what really got me started was the Lions going 0-16. And so it's like the morning after, and then I tell this the first post on the blog, you can read it, but basically the morning after they went 0-16, it was like it was like 10 degrees below zero, and my car wouldn't start. And I had to like dig my way, and it was like a two-year-old car. <laughs> I had to dig my way into it. Finally got it started. Sports Talk Radio came on, and like I got all in my feels about the Lions, and I was like... Like, why do I care about this? This is this is nuts. Like, this is literally the worst sports team in the history of the world. Like, why do I? Why am I so passionate? So I got a Blogspot account that day. I poured my heart into it, and I started bouncing it around. And I kind of went, you know what? What if I took all of the time I spend on forums and on message boards and on websites and commenting and all this other stuff, and I just channeled all that time into writing about the Lions? And, and doing something productive that I can point to and go, look. And, and, you know, my mom always said I should be a writer. Like, I always kind of thought I could be a writer. This would give me a chance to kind of see if I can hack it. And so I started, and there's a lot of response, and I got a Twitter, and I started to build that. Um, and it took off pretty quickly because there were very few casual Lions fans left caring, but those that did really it really really resonated with them and it was kind of a special moment where you know if you were even willing to wear lion's gear out in public you know that was kind of a thing and so you know i built this whole site on like if there's one lion's fan left it'll be me and i think that had that really resonant message and i did a lot of original stuff because i worked in databases i could do data stuff i played a lot with analytics um you know i was way into pro football focus before most people were. I was. I was doing lots of visualization stuff. Like back in like like 2011, I was doing like heat maps with like uh, uh, Pro Football Focus grades, you know. And I think that's something PFF does now. But it was like two, three, four years before anybody else was. Because I was just throwing stuff. Though I just wanted to do original things nobody else was doing. I was trying to write what I wish somebody would produce for me to read. I was just trying to to write what I wanted to read and wasn't out there. And that it really struck a chord. And, um, you know, it was constantly balancing between writing better, improving my writing craft, reading about football and, and schemes and systems and formations, because that was something that I, I really didn't have. You know, I don't, I was never a coach. I never played. You know, I, I just didn't have that um, the analytics. So I was trying to be on that cutting edge of like every conceivable front. Um, and it, and it, it, it between that and like learning how to promote and then working on the website itself because it loaded slow and wasn't pretty, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, and it was, it was a balancing act and I made some decisions that were right and I made some decisions that were wrong, but, but overall it grew and it got noticed. And, um, you know, I promoted myself on the forums. I promoted myself on newspaper websites, you know, MLive, Detroit Free Press, Detroit News, ESPN site, and it got noticed by other bloggers. And that led to um, a part-time gig with MLive, writing their Daily Lions links posts, um, and where I hooked up with Michael Shadi, he had the same gig. He moved on and got an editor's role at Bleacher Report and was like, you know, hey, like, we need to get on tie as, as a Lions feature columnist. And so, um, you know, they offered me a gig doing Lions columns and I was like, cool. And within like a month, they were like, actually, National NFL. Let's get you on National NFL. And so that evolved very quickly. Um, and it got to a point where I was looking at my day job and going, I don't like where this is going. My, my day job got bought by a bigger, way bigger company that had no idea how we worked. Um, and, and the working environment was changing. And I just felt myself not growing. And, and I felt more and more being called to do what I wanted to do, which was write about sports. 
And I kept having people in the industry go, you should be doing this full time. Like you have what it takes, you know, I, I, you like, you should make this work. And, you know, I had three kids, I had a wife I was supporting and, and making that all work was very, very difficult. Um, and Bleacher Report, um, offered me a full-time position and I said, no, and they came back with another offer and I said, no, and they came back with another offer and I was like, man, you know, can I do this? And it took a huge leap of faith for my wife, a huge leap of faith for my family, a lot of help from, from my family, from my wife's family, um, my friends, a lot of, you know. I had a huge support network and everybody was rooting for me to pull it off. So I made the leap. Um, and you know, I had reached a point in the blog where I knew I either had to step up or step off completely where, you know, I was getting uh, like 45, 50,000 views a month. Um, and that was translating to like $75 a month for like, (laughs) you know, of 30, 35 hours a week putting into it and falling asleep at the keyboard, you know, waking up at four in the morning with the screensaver running kind of thing. Um, and again, three small kids, you know, you know, I had to realize I, I couldn't keep putting this much time into it. Uh, if, if it wasn't going to have a return for my family, I just couldn't justify it anymore. And I knew I either needed to, you know, uh, hire other people to write, you know, or have people write for free on the blog, you know, turn it into more of a thing, build it out. So there's forums, try and get user generated content, that sort of thing. I had a couple offers, you know, to buy the site, make it part of a network or whatever. And, you know, I, I made the kind of creative decision to keep it what it was, which was my voice period. And if that meant it dwindled, so be it. And it was the right creative decision and the wrong business decision, probably. Um, but, but uh, you know, the, the work at Bleacher Report just became so rewarding so quickly. Um, and it was, you know, my dream job. It was everything I wanted to do. And that has just built and built and built. And the explosion of the site. I mean, it's like I accepted that job uh, with Bleacher Report. And, like, six months later, I was in an office in New York sitting around a table with Mike Freeman Matt Bowen, Michael Shoddy, Aaron Nagler, Bleacher Report suits. Um, and we're like, okay, how are we going to plan this year? And, you know, overlooking Central Park. And I'm just sitting here going, like, how is this real life? How is this reality? You know, how did this work? You know, how, how did I get this spot? And, you know, um, it was kind of a special time in sports media. And I think if I kind of say the bridge kind of crumbled behind me where, like, if you try to do exactly what I did, uh, it, you know, even given everything else that I had and all the advantages that I had, um, and, and, you know, all the opportunities that were fortunately gifted to me, um, it, you're not going to end up in the same spot because the game has just changed, you know, and, and a huge amount of money went from traditional media to online media in the sports world over that time. Um, and, and Bleacher Report itself went from, you know, even when I joined on, even when they started hiring people, the audience was still overwhelmingly, you know, there's so much venom about the brand and, and how it had gotten to the point it had gotten to. And that has completely turned around. And, and the, the approach of Bleacher Report has completely changed, you know, and uh, it's, it's a completely professional operation now. It's, it's 100% amazing top to bottom. 
and it's it's a fascinating thing. I'm just so fortunate to be a part of. Um, and then you know I've also had opportunities to open up elsewhere. You know I'm a freelancer. I can freelance at other places um, and expand my voice and kind of play with that a little bit. And so you know working for Vice um, and, and again doing the radio thing. They approached me the radio last year to expand that out and. Uh, that has just been awesome for me. And I, you know, I had, had very little radio experience. I did radio commercials when I was a kid because my mom worked uh, in, in radio sales. Um, so, I, so I had some experience reading copy, but that was about it. I, you know, I'd never done live radio. I'd never you know, been a radio host. And they kind of put me together with Jason Cole, who I knew his work, but I'd never even spoken to him before. And we just, <laughs> you know, uh, went with it. And we've, we've developed a great chemistry. Producer Ryan Shell has been awesome. And, and, you know, the support has been great. And, you know, like last week we had Hugh Jackson on and, uh, you know, what he said on our show made the rounds, PFT, NFL.com, Cleveland.com, uh, you know, people writing out like, well, look at what Hugh Jackson said on Ty Shelter's radio show. It's like, ah, how am I here? How is this happening? Um, so yeah, I, I'm extremely fortunate. I, I work very hard. I put in a lot of unpaid hours. Um, I did a lot of hustling, a lot of networking as best I could, um, you know, and, and I tried to be nice to people. You know, when I was blogging, I understood that I was kind of, you know, uh, standing on the shoulders of, of I don't know, you know, giants. I was I was building off of the work of the people that were there reporting the news. You know, I was reading the analysis of Tom Kowalski. I was reading the analysis of John Neo. I was reading the analysis of Dave Burkett and the things that they were reporting. Um, you know, my colleagues at them besides, you know, uh, Phil Zeru, that these guys, and some, you know, Phil's not even in the industry anymore. And so some of these bloggers and podcasters and stuff that came up with me hit that same point I hit where you either have to do it or, you know, or not. And for a lot of them, the, you know, the math didn't work. Um, and it's, it's, it's a very difficult time in the industry right now because after this huge expansion, now we're getting this consolidation back to, you know, there's only so many eyeballs, there's only so many sites, you know, and, and most readers can't open up their Chrome and have, 62 independent blogs open, you know, it, it, it's, it's just not like it was in 2007, 2008, 2009, you know? So, um, I still think blogging is a totally worthwhile pursuit. I still think you can build an audience and a following. I still think that it's something special. Um, and it's a, it's a different, it's a different discipline than straight up sports journalism, straight up, you know, I don't want to use the phrase mainstream media. Um, it, and it, Fan blogging, fan writing from the heart will always have a place and, and can be absolutely great and in some ways even better than traditional NFL coverage or traditional sports coverage. Um, but the idea that there can be 20 different people blogging about one NFL team and all making a living from it, just it just doesn't work anymore. So um, it, it's a tough time in the industry. It's a time of transition. Um, but I think... I think things are looking very much up. If you look at the way the media stuff is trending and, and the opportunities that are going to come up, I think especially over the next five years or so, um, just, just the way people view sports, the way people view information, the way people consume sports information, there's, there's just going to be changes and you got to be, you got to uh, skate to the puck. A lot of people sort of say, and Will Carroll, a fan duel said it, uh, a couple other people have been saying it to you. Kind of, kind of look ahead and go, what's next? What's going to be huge next? Where are people going to be? What are people going to want to read that isn't out there? And, you know, if you answer that question for yourself, then, you, then you're doing the same thing I did, which is you're producing the stuff that isn't out there, that, that you wish you could read. That was very eloquently put. I think that you 
pretty much your journey is what a lot of people did aspire to do when they were getting started in this industry. And I even know now what you were saying about team bloggers maybe not being as normalized anymore. I mean, the feature columnist program at Bleacher Report with the team sites, that was cut, right? So they're not doing that anymore? Uh, yeah, there's a change in, in how they're doing this. They're not going to have several writers specifically assigned to each team. Um, so the, the coverage is going to be a little bit different. Um, I, I'm not 100% positive on how that's going to look. Um, but, yeah, so so that that is changing how the coverage is, is, is being done on a per-team basis. And I definitely agree with you that things have changed. I remember even in 2011 when oh, I was... Sorry, I... I pushed the wrong button. I'm sorry, Ethan. <laughs> what did you say? Oh, oh, sorry about that. So I remember even things have changed so much even since like 2011. I remember I yeah. was doing New England Patriots draft, a New York Jets draft for James Christensen, and those sites are still around. They're doing great work, but it's one of those things where I think that my perception of what's valuable journalism changed, and also I think that I know there are people who are working for that company. And they weren't getting paid very well, so they stopped <laughs> affiliate sites right before, I believe, that that network was bought, of course. But things change really quickly. Uh, I think now there is definitely still a market for those team sites to work. SB Nation does a great job. Bleacher does a great job. But even you said you're branching out to Vice. You're branching out to the comeback. And I think Vice is totally cutting edge with how they do sports content. They have a really great voice that's unique, and their stories are always unique. And that's really the way to go about when you're writing, at least in my opinion. And it's something that definitely matters to me a lot when I try to write anything. And it's part of why recently, and there was a whole bunch of venting about this very, very recently on Twitter, draft content's become a little bit boring to me because all of it's the same. People are doing the same things or saying the same five sentences for every single player. And it just gets a little bit old. It gets a little bit boring. And you look at the content that you're seeing now. In my opinion, if I visit a site, I know the voice it's going to speak to me too. Like, I know that Deadspin's going to be snarky, but they're going to have really, really good journalism, and it's going to be irreverent. I know that Vice is going to be covering a little bit of the grittier angles of sports, but the stories will be really interesting. I know if I go to Every Day Should Be Saturday, SB Nation, what kind of content I'm going to get. Like, really hysterical, over-the-top, gonzo content about just how silly yet wonderful college football is. And when I look at some of the other sites, like, even with ESPN, I, to be honest, I really don't read ESPN anymore. I would say that I probably have read maybe five articles in ESPN over the past month. I, it's just not a site that I frequent. It's not a homepage I go to. If it shows up on Twitter, I might check in on it, but I'm not going to be typing ESPN.com in my bar. So I definitely concur that it's it's hard. And if you want to write full-time, and I've heard it said that some people think that pretty much if you want to be a journalist now... It, needs to be a hobby. Uh, pretty much in my opinion, first of all, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you can commit to be a journalist if you want to. I mean, it's definitely a commitment. It's definitely you're making sacrifices. You said yourself that you had to consult your wife about it because it's a big decision when you're raising a family. And I know that there are certain people 
who I respect as writers a lot, who I think do amazing work, but part of the reason why they're empowered to do so is because they have wives who make hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they have a luxury that not all of us can have. So I think... To, to, to be clear, my wife stayed at home. My wife just just started, went back to work uh, outside the home like like three months ago. Which, um, which is so, huge. So for, yeah, and so you know, so I was supporting a family that whole time, and, and that's I think that's one of the things that gave me an advantage was because being a little older, you know, especially when I started, a lot of the bloggers were 22, 23, 24, and looking at this as like, I'm getting started in my life, this is cool, I had a lot of free time, and then they get two, three, four years in and go, wait a minute, like, you know, if I'm going to be doing that, I can do like a regular job and get more money, you know, I can do, you know, this, yeah, I don't, maybe I wouldn't need a roommate anymore, that kind of thing. I already had three kids, and I already had a job, and I understood how to treat it as a job, and I understood that if I applied myself, and I saw the opportunities at Leecher Report, and I was like, you know what, if I, you know, if I treat my unpaid blog as a job, and, and I listen, and I treat my audience like my bosses, you know, because if I was slow or was missing something, my audience would hit me. They'd hit me up by comments. They'd hit me up and go, where's the article? Where's the stuff? Where's this? I want to know about this. You know, and, and letting them down was a constant fear of mine. Just like letting my boss in, in my job was, was a constant fear. And I, and I wrote for the audience as well, as much as I wrote for myself. And for me at Bleach Report, when I was getting paid, you know, part-time, I approached this as this is my career. If I, if I do this, I, I'm going to be able to have more opportunities. I'm going to be able to expand because I could see the way the company was expanding. And, you know, that continues to be, and for me, you know, you look at Bleacher Report and they continue to innovate, um, you know, in technology, how it's delivered and in the content itself and the way like, okay. And I use this example when I was, I was talking about the newspaper is going to have me in, in the, the Twitter, uh, you know, local Twitter users, you know, uh, when Lovey Smith was fired, uh, you know, Buccaneers announced it at 1030 and, uh, you know, my editor hit me up and was like, Hey. Buccaneers uh, fired Lovey Smith, and I was like, "Yep, I saw it on Twitter. Like, let's go." He and I talked out an angle. I had up, uh, you know, I had the Levante David tweet. I had uh, the Mark Dominic tweet. I built this all in, and I had an article up, you know, a little after midnight. And uh, BuzzFeed's Joel D. Anderson retweeted it. Went sweet analysis, like everybody can, and like. It was the only site, it was the only voice, it was the only thing, you know, it was on the front page, you know, and all these people wake up the next day, it's on their team stream, it's on the front page of Bleacher Report, you know, and and we just own the national conversation that way because we're there, we, we're understanding the opportunities, we're taking advantage of the opportunities. And the same thing happened when the Lions announced uh, Jim Caldwell was coming back. And it was funny because I was like, kind of like, like back up, you know, that day. And so I was working on something else. And the Caldwell news came out, oh, you know, if I don't work, you know, I, I could actually write a Lions in Winter post, you know, first one in however long, like, you know, and then my editor hit me, he was like, dude, like, Caldwell, like, you want to go? I'm like, yeah, sure. And I'm like, how crazy is it that, you know, I'm sitting here like, oh, like, I could write on my blog. Oh, no, wait, like, the second biggest sports site on the planet wants to pay me to put that same post on their front page, <laughs> you know, like, like that just is, it's still an incredible and special opportunity. And, and Bleacher Report continues to innovate in terms of coverage and, and, and it's, it's a fantastic opportunity and it's a fantastic place to be. Um, and, and that's why, again, being unique, being different, finding an angle, covering it is, is you have to bring something else to the table. And I think for me, you know, talk about journalism, like, yeah, there's, 
like it, I don't want to say a hobby element comes into it, but, but you have to learn what you don't know. You have to cut your teeth. You have to be willing to hit deadlines. You have to be willing to work on a schedule. And, you know, there are a lot of people that have got into this and went, you know what, I, I can't do that. I can't work like that. I can't be on call all the time. I can't write about things I don't feel like writing about right now. Um, you know, I can't, I can't treat this like a job. It's not meant, you know, for everyone, for some people, if it's, if it's, if it's satisfying and rewarding for you as a hobby, great. And if it's not satisfying and rewarding for you as a hobby, um, the opportunities to do it as a job are limited. And and honestly, you're going to be competing against a lot of people who would do it for free or could do it for free or have done it for free. And I don't want, I don't mean to weigh in on the, you know, work for free or not debate, but you can cut your teeth and you can learn the ropes and you can do, you can learn the rules of journalism. If you go, I'm going to do this the right way. I'm going to talk to the people who do it the right way. I'm going to read people who I admire. I'm going to read the best and the brightest in the industry. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask them how they do things and I'm going to have an open mind and I'm going to, recognize when I screw up and I'm going to learn from those mistakes, you know, that, that can be as valuable as going to school and getting a degree and, and, and learning all the rules that I have the rules being dictated to you. Um, and so, and so for me, I, I think, uh, the hobby thing is valid, but yeah, if you get two, three years in and go, you know what, I don't love this anymore. It's not worth the time for me. I can't make this sacrifice. You know, or you're six, seven, eight years in and you're doing the same thing at the same site for the same number of people. If it's satisfying to you and you just love that it's the same 112 people that are listening to your podcast or that are reading your blog or whatever it is, if, if you're just, if you just got to get it out. Because that was the thing for me back when I started. I just had to get it out. It was in my fingers. It was in my heart. I had to write. I had to get those feelings out no matter what. And and that people wanted to read it just made it that much more rewarding. Um, so, so it's a choice for everybody and I don't think it means that there aren't opportunities, whether that's at Bleacher Report or Vice or wherever. It it just means that it's not I call it sports media brigadoon. That two thousand eight, two thousand nine, twenty ten, twenty eleven period where all the traditional media companies were throwing money at the wall because they had no idea how to deal with this. And there were, the opportunities were everywhere. It's not the same, um, but the opportunities are still there. And, and maybe it's finding the next opportunity or creating the next opportunity for yourself. And if you think you look at draft coverage and you go, everybody's got the same draft coverage. I don't think that's true, by the way. If you look at ESPN and think there's nothing there, ESPN, I don't think that's true either. They got Matt Bowen there. Um, you know, they're still breaking great news, doing great investigative stuff. Uh, and there's still bloggers there. Kevin Seifert is, is still killing it there. Um, you know, and their report, um, Oh my gosh, Minik Times. Um, uh, oh yeah, well, she's amazing. On the uh, assistant coaches, you know, minority assistant coaches, position coaches not being promoted into coordinators. They're still doing great stuff all the time at ESPN. So the, so the thing is, for me, you find where the opportunities are and you go get them. And if you don't see any opportunities, you create them. Um, and, and I think that, like I said, in the next two, three, four years, I think we're going to see more outlets start up, more innovative approaches, more people finding their own way. And I, I think that opportunity is there. Um, but, but the idea that you can just start up a blog and, you know, for me, it was, I think three and a half years, uh, before I quit my day job, I, I, I'm not sure it can work that way anymore. And I think that you brought up so many good points. Uh, one thing that really did strike me is you're totally correct about how, even if you love to talk about sports, 
if you're just going to get exhausted by it, sometimes if you want to make something a job, you have to commit to it even when you're exhausted. And that's something that I feel like I didn't know when I was 20. And now that I'm almost 25, I have a better idea of that. Where if I want to be a writer, then I have to acknowledge that sometimes I got to write through the burnout or I got to write through the pain a little bit. Uh, yeah. I need to like think, how can I make this more interesting? And if I can't, then I shouldn't be necessarily writing on that topic anymore. And I should treat it, as you said, more like a hobby. So I think that that's really true. And I also agree, I think it was good that you brought up writers over outlets. Because I do think that there are writers out there with interesting takes that I read their stuff, but I wouldn't necessarily read their site stuff. Like, I read Mina Kimes when she posts an article, and I don't do it for every ESPN writer. Uh, when Kevin Clark of the Wall Street Journal posts an article. Yeah. I think he's yep. do. I think he might be one of the most innovative reporters because his angles on stories are really interesting, and he talks about the human element with players, and it makes me want to read because I don't know about that, and I'm fascinated by that. So that's another example, but I definitely think, and I agree with you on this, that if you want to be a writer, you have to commit to trying to write something that'll make it interesting to you. Because even though, like, I also think that we're in a bit of a transitional phase right now where the clickbaitiness of the past, it doesn't work anymore. And yep. you need to really cultivate that audience yourself or cultivate your audience as a site to try and make that clickbaitiness moot, but also find interesting angles to write about. So I totally concur with you there. And I think that what you said is all really fascinating from a writer perspective. And honestly, this podcast is a little bit different than other ones because I think that pretty much the last two segments, we're just going to continue talking about this a little bit longer because I think that this is something that is really relevant and important to a lot of people. And especially given recent events because people are talking about this issue a lot. So, as a professional writer, as someone who's getting paid as a writer, do you deal with burnout, and how do you deal with it? Is it just one of those things where you just power through? Is it one of those things where you try to find different angles to talk about? Or is it something where you just tell yourself that this is a job, as you said, and you just have to power through because this is how you're getting paid? You know, that's that's fantastic, and for me, what I've really come to appreciate is the NFL season itself because it's like um, that. I find that as I start to get if I ever get let me back up a little bit so okay um, you know I find that when the regular season starts I, I'm so into it we have real football to talk about you know we've been oh my gosh, like just making stuff up, not making stuff up, but you know, clawing at any kind of a hint of a story and, and, and you know, just, just desperate for football. We have football to talk about. It's so great. And we get into this crazy, amazing rush of like covering games live, um, and analyzing the new and like breaking it down. We get into this cycle of like, okay, do this on Monday, this on Tuesday, this on Monday, this on oh, sweet, 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 sweet. You know, and it's, it, and the, the first month just like disappears, you know, and, by the end of the regular season, um, you know, that, that routine, that rhyme, like, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. 
like, I don't want to say it gets old, but it starts to get like, okay, like I'm doing this and I'm doing this and I'm doing this. And of course the NFL will always find ways to entertain. The NFL will always find new stories. There'll always be something, you know, and, um, you know, some some news will break. Some coach will get fired. Something will, something will switch up your perspective of the game. Somebody will get injured. Um, you know, somebody will say something, and and there's always stuff that has never happened before. Ray Rice never happened before, and like Ray Rice drops in the middle of the season, and all of a sudden I'm doing the Nancy Grace show. You know, I mean, who? Do, you know, I want a clip of that, that, by the way. What? Is there a clip of that on YouTube? Because I kind of want to see it. I, I wish. And unfortunately, I didn't get a whole lot in because, like, they uh, our booking agent just called me. She's like, do you want to do the Nancy Grace show right now? And I'm like, yes? Uh, okay. And they put me and Rachel Nichols on. And, of course, like, Rachel's just amazing. They've had it, like, locked down. And she had worked with Nancy before, and so she knew what to expect. And the only question Nancy asked me was, why isn't Ray Rice in jail? And I was like, ah, okay, like, I mean, no, I'm not, like, the legal guy. Like, and so, you know, I start. I mean, I, you know, I, I did the best I could from a legal perspective. And she's like, that's ridiculous, blah, 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 blah. And, like, you're gone. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm going to find this YouTube clip. I'm going to find it. Football perspective. But, uh, you know, so, but, but, like, so these things happen. So it's the, the regular season is never boring, but you get into a routine. And by the time you hit this point in the season, you're kind of like, man, like, I can't wait till we get to the off-season. I'm doing, like, projects and stuff and, and like, long-term stuff. Like, last year during the draft, I did this profile of Jake Kumro, who has just this mind-boggling, like, incredible backstory. And, um, like, his family story is is just, I can't even begin to describe it. Go go look for it. If you Google, like, Jake Kumro, Ty Shelter, it, it's there. Um, and, and the more I dug into it, the more it was incredible. And I spent weeks and weeks on it and I did a ton of original research and a ton of, and I, I wrote this piece and it was just, it was so great and so rewarding and so cool. And, ah, that's, I want to get back to that stuff, you know? And so then we do the draft, but the draft stuff is so cool. And, and, and we go all in on draft and free agency is so cool. I flip those around, obviously. Um, you know, and then we get to the hard off season and it's like, oh wow, cool. Like I have time to work on my fiction. I have time to to read, I have time to get get the guitar out, you know, brush up on drums, you know, just hang out with my kids, you know, I have more flexibility, um, do more freelance stuff, whatever it is, uh, work, you know, and then and you work on my craft, um, you know, read more, you know, read like Frank Ford books, read, uh, you know, old old sports writing books, and and, and go back to that sort of stuff, um, and then by the end of that, you're sitting there in August, and you're like. Oh my gosh! I want football. Like, <laughs> football start, you know, and so like it kind of refreshes itself in that way, and and that is that is really helpful. And and um, the, if you don't get a rush off it, if you don't get if it's not fun for you, if it's not exciting for you, if you're not passionate about it, then, then you shouldn't be doing it. Um, you know, it's something for me. Mitch album was my hero growing up. I, you know, as a little kid, fucking four or five years old, I would sneak. Uh, the sports section, or my mom would give me the sports section of the free press, and you know, every day, every week, um, you know, I would steal Mitch album, and you know, other kids, you know, sneak comic. And I, and I, read, I read comic books. You know, other kids, you read comic books under the covers of the flashlight. I was reading Mitch album under the covers of the flashlight, and, and his approach to sports and life 
uh, and everything else is just, just incredible. I don't think there's ever been a better sports writer. Um, and I'll put his best work up against anybody's. Um, but he hit this point where suddenly he was writing in the lifestyle section and suddenly he was doing this other stuff and you could just feel there. Were, and then the, the whole thing where he wrote about the game when he wasn't at the game and said a couple guys were at the game when they weren't the game because they told him he was and he didn't go. So he didn't figure it out. And, um, you know, all this sort of stuff just, just reflects this pulling back from sports because it's not where his passion is. And that's reflected in his work. And, and, you know, he stopped writing books about sports and started writing books only about life stuff. And, and that's what took off and that's what made him successful. And now in, in our industry, in, you know, the 20 somethings and the internet cool kids, you know, Mitch album is just this huge joke because like his sports columns are often not informed because he isn't paying attention or, or isn't why it's just it's not what he's passionate about, but he still has a job and he still does the work. And so, you know, for me, that's something where, you know, if I ever get to that point where I'm more wrapped up in my fiction or more wrapped up in whatever it all else is and, and sports doesn't excite me anymore, then, then I need to find a way to do something else. Cause you know, and, and for me, let me say, you know, I'm, I'm not anywhere near that point. I don't see that point on the horizon anytime. Like, like this, but like, Cardinals Packers, are you kidding me? Like I'm just I'm tearing my hair out. It's just so great. Sports is so amazing. And 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 it it just gets me every single time. And I and I can still hold that in my head, even though the concussion stuff, uh, you know, even though the stadium stuff, the the, the you know, just robbing cities blind to build these billionaires' palaces, all this stuff, I still at the heart of it love sports and I was working on this project I'm working on this massive massive Super Bowl project for Bleacher Report right now and I can't wait for you guys to see it's really cool um, but like I said on, on Twitter I'm working on it and my brain is kicking in the dude you're procrastinating like dude you're you know like I have you, you have to develop this internal clock of like dude you've been on Twitter for 20 minutes <laughs> you know and so my brain keeps kicking in this get to work I'm like no, no, I am working. This is what I'm supposed to be working on. I'm supposed to be looking up cool old Super Bowl stuff, you know? And, like, I keep, like, oh, darn it, I got, like, into a Wikipedia hole. Or, oh, I've, I've been dorking around on pro... No, like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm not procrastinating. I'm doing my job because I have made my job what I do for fun. And that's I mean, that's, that's, that's what it's all about. Um, so, uh, it, you know, again, it, you have to have the passion. You have to care about it. And and that, that will reflect in your work if you don't. And Burnout is a thing that happens um, to a lot of people, and, and and it happens, you know, it happens to me. Obviously, I got burnt out. We've been trying to do both my day job and this job, and um, burnout comes when you don't feel like the reward is there, whether that's financial or whether that's in, you know, attention. You know, if you're doing work and doing work and doing work and nobody's paying attention to it, nobody's giving you feedback, you're not winning any awards, you're not getting any, you know, pats on the back. Um, you know, burnout is, is absolutely real and there's no shame in that. And for all writers everywhere of any stripe, you know, recognizing that, taking care of yourself and then and, and prioritizing, making sure you're right before you move on it, it is a huge thing. Um, and, and there's a difference between sitting there at 11 o'clock when you have yeah, at night, you have a 7 a.m. deadline and going, Man, I don't feel like that. I'll just email my editor like I didn't get it done, and then I'll do it tomorrow. Um, and 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 pushing through to the finish and getting it done and not missing deadline versus you spent weeks or months going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. You know, every time you get in the side, I don't want to do this.
this. Like, I don't feel like doing this. I don't like this assignment. I don't like my editor. I don't like, you know, if you come to dread it all the time, then it's time for you to, to, to look for something else or do something else or, or take a break and get away from it and recharge and find what made you love it in the first place. Um, because, because that, that is truly burnout. And, and again, unless you are solely providing for you know, three little kids and a, and, a, and a spouse, um, yeah, you know, if you can take a break from it, if it is a hobby, if it is a part-time job, you know, then, then do and, and see if you miss it, see if you come back to it, find something else. I, I absolutely encourage anyway, if it's, if it's burnout, if you're, if you're struggling with that in a real big way, then, then move on because you may come back to it or you may just realize it's not for you. And, and that's okay. You know, it's, it, this life is not for everybody. It, it's, it's, you know, there's not enough spots for everybody who wants to do it. And, and it also just asks a lot of people and, and it's okay because you know what? I was not cut out to be an architect. I thought I wanted to be an architect. I took two years of architectural drawing in high school and I, I, I was just horrible at it. And, you know, I was, I was, uh, my senior year, I was working on my final project and I created this house that I thought was like so cool. It like, well, it looked so awesome. And again, we're like two weeks from the final of having to turn this in. And my teacher looks over my shoulder and goes, huh? I'm like, what? And he's like, if you pull into the garage with, and come out of your car with an armload of groceries, you literally have to walk through every single ho- every single room on the first floor to get to the kitchen. <laughs> and I went, oh my God, you're right. And like... You know, it was just, it was just those that you, you, okay, like, I like architecture. I can appreciate architecture. I'm not an architect. I'm just not. I'm terrible at it. And, and you know, I could go on Zilla. I can watch home flipping thing. I can watch HGTV or whatever. I could be into that, but it, it's never going to be something I do for a profession, and that's okay. So if you are a young writer, you need to listen to all of this and internalize it. And I think, thank you so much, Chai. This has been Amazing. We are actually already well over an hour. So I'm going to end it on one more question because, you know, there's a lot to say about this. Um, you'd mentioned that you write fiction, which I think is really cool. I also definitely, I love writing fiction as well. Uh, what projects that you can tell us about are you working on right now? Okay. Well, I've been writing short stories, um, and submitting them to pro markets. Um, which, you know, um, when I was in high school and I was reading and writing a ton of, of, of science fiction, I guess I was reading a ton of science fiction and reading a ton of books about writing science fiction and doing very little actual writing of science fiction. Cause as I said, I just didn't have any stories to tell. Um, and, and I kind of, you know, college, there was the internet and got into sports and, and interneting and all that and kids and all that and all that happened. You know, and then a little while after I quit my day job, I was kind of sitting there, I was, you know, it was like the first off season after going full time. And I was like, wait a minute, am I a full time writer or am I a full time writer? Like time to pull out the old site, you know, read some books, you know, okay. and I found kind of, you know, that, that the science fiction market was only just really evolving out of the, well, there's the few big magazines and then there's novels, you know, the online space was still very immature. It was sort of like the early sports blog days. There's one or two good websites and, and a bunch of people were starting some little things, but it was just at the beginning or the little ways into this, the transition that the sports media world did in like four years, like spread out over 15 years. Um, and so I was like, okay, cool. So I started writing some, some short stories and 
um, you know, it kind of sucked, but um, I was doing my best sort of a thing. And, and um, it was really, really encouraging because the uh, editor, he was a guest editor at the time. He's now the full-time editor at the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Um, I submitted him a story that had been rejected by the old editor. Um, and, and he said, Hey, cool. Any stories are good. Like I'm a new guy, new fresh eyes, send it back in. So did a polish on the story and I sent it in. And he was like, Oh my gosh, I am a huge Ohio state Buckeyes fan. And I remember two years ago, you wrote on Bleacher Report about how black quarterbacks are, you know, not scouted and, and, and groomed and developed the way that white quarterbacks are. And you talked about Terrell Pryor and like, dude, like you're totally right. It was a super smart column and I loved it. I'm going to pass on this story, but like, that was really cool. <laughs> and so like, this is really encouraging things. So Charlie Finley at, at, at FNSF. And so like, okay, so I started and I read blogs and I you know, was working on my craft. and I, I read a lot of, of uh, sort of reading a lot of online short fiction, uh, Clark's world, lots of other places. Um, and, and last year I went to two science fiction conventions um, and they were so energizing. I'm like, wow, like, I don't even know what I didn't know. And, and I didn't think I was going to be able to jump right from, you know, like I'm not on the top rung of the sports media industry. I'm like three, four, five rungs down. Uh, you know, but like when I read about like how to get started as a fiction writer, it's like, okay, like maybe start a blog, maybe get a Twitter, maybe follow your favorite authors on Twitter. I'm like, okay, I'm, I should, I'm way past that. You know, I should be able to jump a little bit over, um, and so, you know, and, and it's, it's really humbling because believe it or not, you know, the oper- there are way fewer opportunities, you know, most professional magazines are buying 25 to 45 stories a year. And there's thousands of people writing and submitting. And I mean, it's just tiny, 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 tiny. And really in short fiction, the economics flat out don't work. Um, you know, you're writing short fiction because you love it or because you're trying to get a book deal because writing novels is really the only way to make a living as a fiction writer. So for me, I was writing short stories, working on my craft, and I, I was thinking, you know, hey, as, as a writer um, who writes 800 to 4,000 word pieces, this should be able to translate. And I will tell you, my leads are a lot better uh, from working on first lines, that my story structure as a column, because if you go back and look at my old, old Bleacher Report stuff, first... I had no idea how the hell to write a column. They were all blog posts. Um, I had no idea how to introduce an idea, develop it, conclude it. Um, and then everything was subheads, like sections, like intro oh, yeah. section, first point section, second point section, third point section, conclusion, like 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 third grade, uh, five paragraph structure, you know, like with super, super elementary stuff. Now I can write a column, you know, and that's because of the work I did with short stories. Um, and I still, to this day, I, I was very embarrassed because of the, the uh, confusion. This local Detroit um, uh, con that's that's held in the Detroit area. I went last year, and I came out of the panels with a bunch of good ideas, and I developed one that's a novel now that I'm working on. I thought it was going to be a short story, turned out to be a novel, um, kind of about uh, like like gentrification. Um, oh, that sounds sort of cool. The idea of of like authenticity as a source of magical power. So like inhabiting a space um, and, and being able to influence it. And also it's also the mass of the person. So the, the protagonist of the story uh, is a bigger person and she like buys this space to like be like, cool, like bake shop, like cutesy little hipster bake shop. 
and like quickly discovers there's much bigger powers at work and as powerful as she is she had no idea what was going on and so like um uh, it's kind of it's yeah so it, it kind of builds off of that um and 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 like I said, it started as a short story and it got into a long short story and I kind of hammered it into a quick ending and I went, okay, like, what do you think to my wife? And she's like, I want more. Like, this needs to be lots more. I was like, ah, ah. I was thinking it might be a novel. She's like, yeah, right. It's a novel. So that's going to be my off season project this year is, is, is writing a novel. Um, and, uh, the thing is this convention that I was talking about, it was literally exactly a year ago. It's this weekend again, and I haven't made a short fiction sale. And it, I'm just, it's been really, really humbling. Um, but I've, I've opened my eyes up and my ears up to a lot of different voices. Um, if you've been following my Twitter, like I'm, I'm catching up on my Goodreads account, my Amazon reviews and that sort of thing. Um, because these ideas and, and these people, I think, are at the vanguard of um, how we think about life and how we contextualize um uh, you know, news and thought, like you talk about genre fiction, imagining the future. And I think it's really imagining the future of society. You know, 60 years, 40, 50 years ago, it was about imagining the future of technology because it seemed like that was what our whole future was going to be. And, and now it's like, like, what is the, the frontier of identity? What is the frontier of our ability to do things? And, and, you know, how can we imagine the future in a way that's going to be better? Uh, and, and there's just a lot of really cool mind bending stuff out there. And, um, some of it is commercially wildly successful and some of it is not. There's a lot of people dependent on Patreon. There's a lot of people dependent on Kickstarter. Uh, there's a lot of great outlets doing incredible work that are barely scraping by. Clark's World is, is maybe the best genre fiction outlet with the highest quality stuff. And uh, Neil Clark, the editor, is on like his fifth straight year of, can I please not have a day job fundraising? <laughs> you know? And so it's like it, it, they're going through at a very slow elongated curve a lot of what we've been going through in sports media um and so like i said it, it was like super super shrunk for us and, and like this is all just still slowly developing but we're figuring out how do we monetize this how do we just deliver this uh how do we get grow our audience beyond the very small subset of baby boomers who've been the heart of genre fiction forever and now there's all these young tumblr kids just coming up and just killing everything and it's like wow like i'm hooked into that and i can see my oldest daughter she's 11 the arc she's making the shows she's watching the stuff she's following you know her youtubers and, and stuff um like i can see like that's where everything is going and it's super super exciting for me as a, as a reader super super exciting for me as a writer and certainly as a parent like, I, I want to be involved in that. I, I want to see where this is going. I want to be able to share this kind of cool stuff with my kids um, and, and be as excited for the future as they are. And I think that's a perfect way to wrap this up. I know also, as someone else who also wrote fiction and had told myself that if I didn't get published by 25, I would self-publish, and then had friends beta read it and say, this could be so much better you should make all these changes to the point where now I'm not going to do that. It's definitely a process and it's really hard. And I think your book sounds really cool. So I would love to read it once you're at the point where you need beta readers. And I'm sure that it's going to be really, really good. And sure. And I'm excited to hear it. I've been, I've been writing and submitting other stuff. I've got like seven or eight short stories that have been submitted something like 60 times to pro markets. Um, so, uh, there's, and again, I did the same thing. I'm on forums. I'm on blogs. Absolute Right is, is a great one. Um, 
there's a couple others, a couple of the resources and that sort of thing that I've been poking around at. And it's, it's kind of exciting because it's, it's sort of like starting at, at ground zero all over again. Um, so if you want a beta reader, I'm happy to beta read. We'll beta read together. Uh, I can, anybody else listening, you can hit me up on Twitter and, and we can all rock out this sports writer uh, fiction journey together. And on that note, I think it's finally time to end the Hammer Time podcast, the longest one to date, but there was a lot to say, and Ty Schalter did a great job uh, talking about his experience as a writer, and I think that this is a very meaningful and important episode to listen to because of your honesty and everything that you said. So, Ty, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me, dude. Definitely. And that's it for this episode. I'm not sure what's going to happen next week because I'm going to be at the Senior Bowl in Mobile. So there might not be an episode. We might have multiple guests on. Follow me on Twitter, and I'll give you an answer later in the week. But otherwise, thank you for listening, and have a good one.